Um, Let me pray for us. Let me just ask God to make our our hearts attuned to him this morning on his word. And uh, that's all I want to think about. Now I want to think about this awesome, joyful idea uh, that was God's idea of baptism. So let me pray for us. God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it's timeless and unchanging. We thank you that despite the winds and waves and turbulence of this world, that you are sovereign and good and you hold us in your hand. God, we thank you for giving us these reminders, these these signs, these, these seals, these sacraments that teach us about that fact, that you are in control and that in a world of chaos, you have come to take everything that was wrong and make it right. So God, as we talk about the waters of baptism this morning and we, we think about the, what it means in the initiation of our faith, God, we ask, would you give us eyes to see you more clearly, ears to hear from you? God, would you give our lives as a, a witness to share your good news? God, make us attuned to you right now, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen, amen. So uh, we're in the midst of a two-part series. It's super long. Last Sunday and this Sunday on baptism. I wish I could spend all year on baptism. I love this theme. Um, But two-part series on baptism. Last week we talked about this theme of life-giving water throughout God's word. And we did that because you cannot talk about baptism without talking about water. Everybody with me? Um. Last Sunday we learned that from the beginning of Scripture there's this theme of water that, that emerges and then reemerges time and time again throughout God's Word of streams and rivers and cisterns and rain and pools. And as you walk through each example, you begin to get this sense that maybe God is showing us something than, more than just first meets the eye. By the time Christ comes to earth, we learned last week he takes this basic element, this, this concept of water, And he makes this the source by which we're initiated now into the faith. So last week we learned just as water is life, Christ is eternal life. Just as water washes us clean, Christ washes our sins away. That's the picture of baptism. But this morning I want to suggest that that's only part of the picture. That's only a small part of the picture. In fact, there's a second reality in baptism that's even more vital if we're going to understand the reality of our faith, and that is what I want us to focus on this morning. And here's my claim. Baptism is not only about water, it's about promises. It's about God's promise signified to us in the water. In biblical terms, we call this a covenant. So the case I want to make today is that baptism and covenant are uniquely intertwined and as uniquely intertwined as baptism and water. You cannot talk about baptism without talking about promise. I mean, in fact, it's by that very word covenant that the entire Bible and the entire story of God and his people is written. So I thought we're going to ask three really simple questions this morning. All at the same time, I'm just going to throw them into the sermon. We're going to shake them up, toss them around. And by the end of our time together, my hope is that by these three questions, we're going to leave with a more robust and biblical and practical understanding of what it is that baptism does for us. These are the three questions. One, what is a covenant? It's a big biblical word. Let's talk about it. What is a covenant? Two, what does covenant have to do with baptism? And three, and this is the most important part, why in the world should we care? 
Why should we care? So let's open up God's word. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to open up to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 doesn't say the word covenant in it, but I want you to think about that. What does God's promise have to do with this this chapter? We're going to read Romans chapter 5 verses 12 all the way to 21. So let's listen uh, now to God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. The earliest known handshake in all of history goes back to the 9th century BC. Over 3,000 years ago, archaeologists found that this, so there's this stone carving of two kings, an Assyrian king and a Babylonian ruler. And on this stone, these two men are depicted with their hand outstretched towards one another as if they're making some sort of official agreement. History tells us by that one gesture, an alliance was formed between the two nations that changed the course of the ancient world. And from that point forward, a handshake has proven to be one of the most powerful gestures in life. In fact, when you think about it, the handshake is the grand gesture of history. Homer, in his works of Iliad and Odyssey, he described handshakes as a sacred symbol of trust between two parties. On gravestones back in Greece, they used to carve images of the deceased shaking hands with their loved ones as a final testament and farewell. Roman coins at one time had the symbol of handshakes as the trusted currency exchange. Look at how one historian explained it. He says this, An agreement can be expressed quickly and clearly in words, but it's only made effective by a ritual gesture. Open, weaponless hands stretched out towards one another, grasping each other, in a mutual handshake. Or if you'd prefer to skip the academics, here's how Garth Brooks once put it. He said, a handshake is the sincerity you have for the person whose hand you are shaking. Still to this day, for many, a handshake is as good as a signature on a piece of paper. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, that was yesterday before the corona. But think about this. It's been 3,000 years. Think about all that the handshake has already had to endure. It's coming back. 
Because for centuries, the handshake has been a sign of a contract made. It is a gesture of two parties making a a seal of a deal. So let me ask this. Um, What happens then when Almighty God makes a covenant or a promise with his people? Where's the handshake? And I ask that because one thing start clear throughout the entire Bible. Our God is a covenant-making God. The Bible is by its very nature a covenant story. What I want us to see this morning is that with every promise, each covenant that God makes between him and his people, the Lord often brings about a sign. One of the most well-known, the most obvious is found in Genesis 9 where God promises Noah to never flood the earth again, right? What's the sign? Look at this. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. A covenant is a promise. It's a pact made between two parties. And in the scripture, God often brings with this covenant a sign. And much like water, the Bible carries this theme of covenant from the beginning of the scriptures all the way to the end of the scriptures. So consider this with me. What does covenant then have to do with baptism? If you were to say to me, Ryan, tell me the story of the Bible, I might tell it like this. God's made many promises throughout the scriptures, but there's two overarching covenants that will tell you everything you need to know to put your faith in him. The first covenant was made at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden between Almighty God and humankind. We call it the covenant of works. And God's covenant with Adam and Eve went something like this. If you are obedient, you will live forever. If not, you will die. That was the pact. That was the agreement. And like any good pact, there are conditions now to be met and consequences laid out if you fail to keep the pact. Look at this, Genesis 2, 15. So the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil do not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you will die. And as we know, long before the ink dries, Adam and Eve shred up the contract. And I'll never forget, as a professor of mine once said, ever since that moment, our world has been filled with covenant breakers. From that point forward, the covenant of works was shattered, not by God, but by us. And here's the problem with the breach of contract with Almighty God. The consequence was what? Death. And from that point forward, no matter how hard we try, there is no escaping reality. Reminds me of the great cartoon of Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny, just to bring it back down to a cartoon level. Be very, very quiet. Remember that? And no matter how hard Elmer Fudd tries, he cannot catch the wascally wabbit. Without fail, every time he gets outwitted, outplayed, outdone by Bugs Bunny. Such it is with our sin and our salvation. 
From the very beginning that Adam and Eve, when they chose to break the covenant with God, despite every attempt to make our relationship right again, we can't do it. We fall into sin every time. It's a reality that you and I are far too familiar with. Target missed, wascally wabbit gets it again. So what does the covenant-making God do with the people who time and time again choose to break the covenant? Listen carefully, because this part's the important part. God makes a second covenant, a new promise. This promise is not made to nullify the first promise. This promise is made to fulfill the obligations of the first covenant. It's called the covenant of grace. Covenant of works, now covenant of grace. And you can find it almost immediately after Adam's fall. God tells the serpent, one will soon be coming who will take the consequence of sin and evil and death and destroy it for good. Look at this in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, he tells the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, though you may strike his heel. In other words, one is soon coming who will crush all of sin and evil and the consequences of it. And from that point forward, the Bible now tells us a story of God's plan to restore what Adam and Eve destroyed. That is the story of the Bible. It is the unfolding of the covenant of grace. All the other promises of Scripture fall in line behind that. It first plays out in this man named Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he tells him, I will make you a great nation and through you the world will be blessed. Through your lineage I will be glorified. You will testify of my goodness. Remember, that was the original plan of Adam until Adam messed it up. So God now hands it to Abraham. And in just Genesis 15, God makes this promise with Abraham. He tells him, your descendants will outnumber the, 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 the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. I will be your God and you and your people will belong to me. And in just chosen people, we now see God's redemption, this covenant of works, begin to emerge. Genesis 17 tells us Abraham received a sign of the promise. Do you remember what it was? It was the sign of circumcision so that every generation after him would remember the covenant. Romans 4.11 tells us he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. And it's now by this chosen people that we see this covenant of grace begin to unfold. Long down the lineage, you'll remember, same lineage. Moses comes on scene. Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness, and it was here that God makes another promise up on this mountain. He gives Moses the, Lord, uh, the, the Ten Commandments by which the people of God should live so that he might live with them. Moses comes down the mountain with tablets in hand, and look at how this plays out, Exodus 19.5. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. Well, what happens if you don't keep the covenant? Look at the people, how they agree to do their part, 19.8. And the people answered together, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And you also may believe and believe you forever. And yet again, we now see this covenant of grace take another fold open. 
as the Lord is now with his people through the tabernacle, his presence leading them by pillar of fire and cloud to the promise yet, and yet the wilderness is a really tempting place. And you can read time and time again how God's people fall flat on their face in sin with grumbling and complaints and worship of false idols. So what does a covenant-making God do? He keeps his promise. And God now makes a path by which their relationship can be made right. So through a system now of animal sacrifice on what was called the Day of Atonement, God's people, by faith, are made pure again. And yet time and time again, this exhaustive ritual now plays out. Because sin, the wascally wabbit, has no end. Fast forward with me. God knows this sin continues to ravage his people, and so in the same lineage, God makes now another promise to King David. Same lineage as Abraham. And in the continuance of that covenant of grace, he tells him, from you will come a Messiah, a king who will save their people from their sin. And this time, this is important, the promise has no conditions. Look at this, 2 Samuel, 6, or 2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house, David, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now let me ask you, who is the king? Who is the king that will succeed David? Who is the king whose throne will last forever? It is Jesus Christ. Baptized by the water of the Jordan, we learned last week to fulfill all righteousness. The promised king later nailed to the cross, suffering the wages of our sin and death by Adam, crushing evil in his death and resurrection, throne established forever. Back to our scripture lesson this morning. As one trespass led to the condemnation of all humankind, thanks Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. As one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the promise. That's the covenant of grace. So what's the sign? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that I've taught you. It is baptism. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. It's the new circumcision. The waters by which we see Adam's sin in us washed away. God's promise fulfilled. Now, which leaves me with one question, and I appreciate you letting me get nerdy with you this morning. Here's the question. Why should we care? What's the point? If you ask the average Christian why baptism matters, most of us would say that baptism is a moment to declare my faith publicly in Christ. And man, that is so true. Baptism has to be a testimony of our faith. But if that's the ultimate aim, we've missed the point. See, I think so often in a me-oriented culture, we've come to believe that baptism is something that I do. I believe in Jesus, therefore this is my moment, this is my declaration, this is my faith. But if you really look at the concept of covenant and sign throughout the scriptures, you come to find that baptism is actually about God's promise. Not to a person, but to a people. It's about what God has done, it's about God's work. It's about God's fulfillment of his side of the covenant in spite of our failures. And so today as we gather around this lake, 
what we're really doing is we're teaching every person in the area who is watching God's visible sign of the reality of his promise in Christ. Martin Luther, as you know, is probably one of the most prominent, respected leaders in the history of the Protestant faith. Even the secular textbooks will tell us in high school as we learn about him that this man's bravery was unparalleled, leading the Reformation and standing firm in God's truth. But what many don't know is how much Luther struggled with life behind the scenes. By his own writing, he admits that he fought constantly with anxiety and depression. At one point, he was said to be wrestling so badly that, uh, with the devil that he threw an entire ink pot across the room, hitting the wall, splattering all over the window sill. At night, his thoughts would spin into full-on spiritual battles. And Luther said the only solace that he could find in his worst of moments was in yelling out these words, Baptizatus sum. Baptizatus sum. Latin for, I am baptized. I am baptized. I have the sign of the covenant of Almighty God to save his people from his sin. What are you, evil and death? When life throws at us uncertainty and unknowns, and we all are experiencing that lately, when you find yourself walking through chaos and conflict, and we know what that's all about. If you wake up or you go to bed struggling or weary or wandering in a world that's lost in sin, this is what baptism is all about. God has given us a sign and a seal that declares that death and sin and struggle will be no more. That for those who are in Christ, we are forgiven, loved, saved, and sent. And by the waters of baptism, then, we are promised life and life abundant, hope, and hope eternal. So today we're going to go play in the water. I hope you'll come. And we're going to sing promises of amazing grace. I hope you'll sing. And then we're going to live out the greatest command of Scripture. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for signs of your promises to us, Lord. We thank you that in one baptism we can be reminded of your faithfulness and goodness throughout the generations. God, we thank you for keeping your promise when we have not kept ours. Lord, for your faithfulness when we have been faithless. So God, I ask, I ask that as every baptism takes place in those waters this morning, God, that you would be glorified, that we would testify and witness to your sure and certain promise that spans all time and place and situation and struggle. God, that we are baptized, washed clean, made new in you, and the gift for us is the gift for the world. Lord, thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.